Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today in our fourth and final of our Spring Series Live podcast edition. And today it's all about a great chapter in the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy, which, as you know, we have been promoting on our live podcast series. Specifically today, we're talking about working therapeutically with African-American youth, families, and communities with our two guests that I've been really looking forward to talking to about, Carlin Tishner and Corey Yeager. I'm going to tell you more about them in a second. But first, let me talk about the handbook. It is the first of its kind, the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy for clinicians, researchers, educators, graduate students, policymakers. It's a four-volume set, a groundbreaking reference work on both the profession and the practice of systemic family therapy. It integrates the scholarly literature on systemic interventions focused on children's couples and families into a single resource. And in our live series for the last two months, we've been focusing on volume four, which is families over the lifespan and global mental health. We strive to give you some skills you can use and listen to this. So it's informative, it's educational, but also gives you the ability to go and after listening and being with us for an hour to go and do something in your direct practice that makes a difference. So let me tell you a little bit about our two guests. Dr. Carlin Tishner believes in positively impacting the lives of others in marginalized communities. He received his Master's of Arts degree with a specialization in MFT from Michigan State in 2011, and he also got his doctorate there under the tutelage of my colleague, Dr. Adrian Blow, in Human Development and Family Studies with a specialization in Couple and Family Therapy in 2016. Over the years, Dr. Tishner has worked in the Lansing School District as a developer and director of the Behavioral Intervention Monitor Program, a student service specialist, and the director of Project Prevent, which was a federally funded grant to increase school-based and community-based mental health services for students and families. In 2019, Carlin moved home back to Indianapolis, Indiana, where he is currently the director of social-emotional health at the Indiana Youth Institute and the founder and CEO of Carlin J. and Associates Consulting Firm. He's also an adjunct professor at Abilene Christian University and the senior partner and co-founder of Family Links, a social service agency. And he's joined by Dr. Corey Yeager, who is a LMFT, focusing his therapeutic practice primarily on serving African-American community. He holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Metropolitan State University, master's degree from Argosy, and a PhD in family social science from the University of Minnesota. His research emphasis centers on better understanding the plight of African-American relationships while educating service providers 
to utilize the family systems context while facilitating meaningful change in both their personal and professional lives. Welcome, gentlemen. It is great to have you here. And the first question is always this letters to the field chapter. There's so many different perspectives, and it's a personal passion project for many of the authors. So tell us specifically your motivation to write your contribution to this chapter, but also how you got to be in this profession. You know, so I, I came to the profession, um, obviously, you could, as you can tell, as, as, an, as an older man, uh, I had been working in the service industry at the, at, for Ford Motor Company and found my way in, back into the field of psychology and MFT and really had some great mentors, began to do some work in the school systems there in Minneapolis, fell in love with the systemic way of thinking, which I think is deeply connected to the collectivistic way that African-Americans may well see the world. So this systemic way of being was quite natural to me. So began to do that work and, and became more deeply interested in, and then pursued my PhD at the University of Minnesota, kind of dove more deeply into the research. I think that was really, that's kind of been the journey so the reason that I wanted to, to write my piece in the handbook was, I think, Letters to the Field gave us an opportunity to really kind of give our, our specific opinion and suggestion on where are we in our field and where are we headed, especially and specifically to engaging the African-American community, who we know historically doesn't engage, we don't engage um, the therapeutic realm uh, at high rates like other communities do. So finding ways in which to convey that message from the perspective of a, a MFT and a person that is part of that community, I thought was quite important. So began to write and with that connection to the University of Minnesota gave me the opportunity to do that. So I thought it was really important. Yeah, we're going to talk more in a second about the barriers for African-American community seeking services that traditionally MFTs provide. But first, mm-hmm. Carlin, your, your origin story, so to speak, how did, how did you get involved in our profession? Yeah, I actually uh, remember uh, listening to one of the podcasts previously um, with Susan Johnson talking about how the field found me. Um, I knew nothing about MFT in particular as I was um, exploring my degree. Uh, what I what I found was that I became more interested in the people before I knew about the field. I was at Michigan State University for some work during the summer and happened upon a research project that was exploring the experience of graduate students and undergraduate students who were minority. Happened to be uh, Dr. Richard Wampler, who was leading that study. And I learned more about the field of MFT through that. And naturally, I was uh, drawn to psychology and interested in the lived experiences of individuals from a cognitive perspective perspective. But shortly after that, learned about MFT, became more interested in MFT and found myself really connected to it in significant ways as a person and also within my approach naturally. And so that's how I happened on MFT. It was really something that found me. I will say my answer to the question of how, why did I write the the letter? It started really with the persuasiveness of the late, great uh, Dr. Karen Wampler. She emailed me and then came to my office uh, as I was an associate superintendent of the local school district there and asked me to give voice to something that she was working on. And as she began to describe the project, it became really clear to me that that was something I wanted to be invested in at some level. And so the, the letter um, was really my perspective on um, what is important for us to consider as clinicians as we begin to work with and as, as we do work with African-Americans, recognizing what Corey has already mentioned, 
the reality around that engagement, but also the ways in which we currently approach um, these populations, in particular African-Americans. Um, it's really important for us to talk about that. And I look forward to the deeper discussion that we'll have today. Absolutely. And Carlin references the late, great Karen Wampler, who has been spoken of frequently on the podcast lately as we've been talking about the handbook. And if you're out there listening, you can go back to our archives. We were able to conduct what little did we know at the time, the last interview with her two months before her untimely passing in uh, January of 2020, where she lays out her passion for the field. And really the handbook is is a legacy to, to her vision as far as recruiting the latest and greatest minds in the field of systemic family therapy. And certainly we're talking to two of those guys today. All right, so let's let's orient our listeners. First of all, historically, why do you guys believe the African-American community is skeptical or engages MFT or therapeutic services in lower rates uh, than obviously majority populations? What are the constraints to seeking help? Your practice finances are about to get a whole lot easier. As a mental health care professional running your own business, you're probably more familiar with your session notes than with financial records. Luckily, Herd is a bookkeeping and tax platform designed to help you track the financial health of your practice and alleviate the stress around your business finances. Built and designed for therapists, Herd offers affordable bookkeeping services, personalized financial reporting, and tax assistance to ensure clinicians make the most of their business and their time. Schedule your first consultation at www.joinherd.com. That's www.joinherd.com. Well, I would just start off by saying, uh, stating the obvious, uh, that about 2%, I believe somewhere around in there, about 2% of therapists, social workers are African-American. So when, when folks of color are struggling and looking for therapeutic support, as they begin to look, it's disheartening to say, well, nobody looks like me. So if no one looks like me, how in the heck are you going to hear me? Right. And I think that's one of the struggles. And I think it's akin to a number of therapists that I talk about as, as they engage folks of color, what may occur, and it's really almost sickening, what may occur in the therapeutic realm is microaggressive behavior, microinvalidation right, that I come in to say I need to find support and help, but I have a skepticism about you truly understanding me. And then that stereotype thread and that burden of suspicion that occurs when I walk in saying, is this person really going to understand when I bring up race-based issues? So what a, a, what, a, what a client of color may do is, is seek to see, can you handle what I'm going to give you about this racial thing? we have racial difference. I think one of the struggles that occurs that ensues therein is that therapists may avoid the conversation of race. They may not talk about it. If it doesn't come up, therapists don't want to bring it up, especially a white therapist with a black or brown client. So they avoid and pull back. But the person of color is saying they're scared, they're nervous to even talk about this. So the distrust and the mistrust that they even walked in with mounts and builds. So can you imagine that I walk in needing help and the mistrust builds even broader and more deeply in the therapeutic realm. So why would I even continue to engage in this, in this process? Because I almost become more damaged through the therapeutic process, which is almost 
it's it's sickening to even think about. So I think that's one of the one of the obvious reasons uh, that folks of color don't engage. And then the stigma that is attached to therapy specific to African Amer- the African-American community. It is part of the social network and the social fiber. And we as a community say, these structures, these societal structures don- have never been kind to us. So if we know that they haven't been kind to us historically, why would I lean in to engage in that network? Uh, th- because I-, I distrust that. So those, those are just some quick pieces that, that I'm reminded of that I think are fundamental and foundational to why we don't engage. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of alignment, right, uh, Corey, uh, to what you're saying. And so I'll just add a few things that um, you mentioned that I want to just give a spin to it. And so, you know, what I, what I hear Corey talking about is this cultural mismatch and it's perceived and it's real. It's this reality that the person that I'm being supported by does not have any contextual knowledge of the reality of my lived experience. And it's also perceived. And so it is a natural barrier for me to not engage. And then when it does happen, there is often stories around my experience with it not being useful. And so that story expands across communities and folks tend to decide to select alternative means of support. And so the alternative means of support is also community-based. Individuals might seek out spiritual means of support rather than seeking out these more structural organizational means of support. And that connects to even Corey's thought around that social stigma is for me to receive and identify these services that are above and beyond what I know is true for me, real for me, and useful for me, then it may even create some cognitive dissonance in the individual who is considering to seek services, even though they know there's a possibility of a cultural mismatch. And as Corey mentioned, those microaggressions. And then the last thing I'll say is systemically, there's just challenges with this accessibility. Where are these services, these centers, these access points to MFTs? That's a really critical question, right? Is, is where do we find ourselves putting up our shingles? Is it in the communities of color or is it outside the communities of color? And are we asking them to not only traverse their perceived and real uh, boundaries around those services, but also asking them to drive and find us where we are and then take the incredible risk of actually engaging in a system that may or may not help them. So important Carlin, things to consider. Yeah. Carlin, as you say that, man, you remind me too. So so part of my, dis- my, or my dissertation was around as a therapist of color with this battle that ensues saying, all right, I represent a system and I love the therapeutic realm, but my community doesn't trust it. So I began to dive into that in the research and my, my dissertation was around finding confidants and confiders in the African-American community. And I built an intervention with the great Bill Doherty around, who was my advisor at the University of Minnesota, around finding ways in which to um, intervene and train nodals in the African-American community to not become therapists. Because what we already know is that folks are turning to people in their community to engage about issues they have. If I have a struggle or an issue with my wife, my wife and I are struggling, one of the first things I'm gonna do is pick up the phone and call my boy like, hey man, she's tripping, I'm struggling over here with her. But I know he can't fix it. I know he's not gonna fix the issue, but I get to relieve pressure around the issue. So what if we gave opportunity for folks in our community to understand more deeply and recognize struggles that may be coming from those folks and to be a better confidant. And I think that's one of the things that we can do. And it's 
taking business away from us as therapists, but that's okay because our we are charged with finding an, an ability to support folks that need them, need it. So I think that's just the, something that Carlin said that reminded me of of the work that we have done. Uh, yeah, and the, the great Bill Doherty, we mentioned Karen Wampler, we've had him on the, the podcast as well, mm-hmm. this idea of being a citizen therapist yes. and being known in the community in which you yes. practice. But you all said, you know, we like stories on this podcast. So I'll tell a story, it's kind of foundational to my development and kind of encompassing some of those themes and then we can riff off that. So I was trained in Chicago 20 years ago and it was the training was uh, in one part, 50% of my week was in a traditional clinic for individual couple and family therapy. And then the other part was in the community. I worked in a school in Cabrini Green. And those of you who know Cabrini Green in Chicago, one of the most infamous housing projects. So there's no traditional therapy like uh, you read in the textbook or you thought it would be. The, the stakeholders there and the rainmakers were people in the community. So I was in a community center in a school housed right within the middle of Cabrini Green. There were not traditional therapy rooms. We went and outreach, out, outreach with the pastor and then the stakeholder in the school who the parents knew and the community knew. And that was so foundational. And we didn't get clients the way you normally get through an intake. You go and hang out in the community centers. You hang out where the people are with the credible sources and you meet people where you're at. And I, I remember that blew my mind what I thought traditional therapy was. And then with working with underprivileged and basically populations that had been burned by the system and to really meet them where they're at and understand that community in which they lived and their lived experience was so important. And I'm a ethnic looking guy, but I certainly and have many experiences that may, maybe made me more accessible, but I, I certainly didn't pretend to know that was like what that was like. And I think what you guys talk about sometimes when you are a therapist, young, chronologically or professionally or from the majority, you don't ask those questions because you don't a want to be uncomfortable or you don't think it's related to the presenting problem. But if you don't ask about that lived experience, as you all are saying, I think you miss a huge opportunity. Talk about, again, why that is so important. And if you are not a minority population and you are working in this case with an African-American community, why is it so important to ask about that lived experience? And then how do you do it if you're unsure of how to bring it up? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So cultural paranoia is something that we learn about as MFTs. And and we talk about it from a lens of the population has a cultural paranoia, which requires us to work on reducing the social stigma around those individuals receiving and benefiting from our services. But I'd like to switch the conversation to think about that that cultural paranoia is justified and that cultural paranoia is not for us to try to reduce, but instead to deeply understand and then find ways to partner with the population so that they can explain to us why that cultural paranoia is present, but then also what we need to do as the clinicians to reduce the gap between the cultural paranoia and the lived experience of the client. And when I say us reducing the gap, I mean that we need to be more intentional about being partners in reducing the gap rather than trying to ask the clients to come to us and find ways to navigate their own cultural paranoias. And one of the ways that we could do that, to your point, Elias, is to increase and privilege and support and leverage cultural stories. The idea that African-Americans are situated within context is so significantly important that we can't address any treatment problem 
any treatment issue, even any presenting problem without recognizing that it exists within a context of being minoritized, being marginalized, and being systemically oppressed historically. And so we have to be able to first start with that kind of conversation. And the way we get there is really creating space for cultural story, allowing our clients to tell us about their lived experiences in meaningful, authentic ways and being intentional as the therapist with engaging without judgment or prescripted approaches to addressing it. It might even require us to be incredibly uncomfortable and to sit with even some of that experience in a way that might make us feel like we were responsible or our community was responsible or not even having the necessary response that a therapist typically identifies as the go-to. Sometimes it's okay to just be silent and present and acknowledge lived experience as truth without having a response. Yeah, so I wish I could add to that, but <laughs> there's not much to add to what Carlin just said. Just some pieces that I, I will highlight as well. Carlin just talked about that that piece of holding judgment or, or holding back uh, judgment. I think one of the misnomers in terms of judgment that we're taught in our graduate programs is that we should be uh, judgment neutral or judgment free. We hear that language. That's not possible. So we can dance around that all we want. It's not possible to be judgment neutral. But what I can do is hold the judgment that I have, recognize and be aware of it and figure out how that plays in the conversation in the therapeutic realm, because I'm going to hold judgment. Let's just be clear about that. If you're human, you have judgment. People walk in, you judge. People say things you judge. What we're taught is to hold it back. But people that have intuitive senses, if I'm a therapist and I'm holding judgment, I'm trying to hold it back. If the, the person I'm working with has intuitive senses, they're going to feel that. They're going to know that, ah, oh, he's feeling something. So a couple of things. So Jim Nelson was a mentor of mine. has been a mentor of mine for many years. And in, many, in the Minneapolis area, been um, engaged with AMFT for a number of years. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is the struggle um, that ensues or that is produced by the medical model. The medical model is a struggle for us as therapists. And one of the things that Dr. Nelson often talked about was, as MFTs, too often, Mnuchin played with this a bit, is that too often we sought to have a space at the trough for insurance. We want this, we need it. But then we forgot that what our unique abilities really were, right? We just want to show up at the trough and be able to bill insurance. And oh my God, can we, well, let's push forward and get that. But then do we forget uniquely who we are as MFTs? What makes us unique about being, being systemic, relational, and contextual thinkers? We can't forget that. We cannot leave that to the wayside. You asked the question about the lived experience, Eli. If we're not engaging and asking and being curious about the lived experience, what the heck are we up to? It's not therapy. If I'm not asking you about your lived experience, it's not therapeutic. I want to know about what your experience has been. Um, specific to you and your community and your upbringing. That is one way in which I can better understand you. So what we struggle with, especially racially in this country, is that when the conversation of race comes forward, we move to decontextualize it. Because if I can decontextualize race, I can soothe my cognitive dissonance. If I don't put context on it, man, it soothes my cognitive dissonance because I don't, I don't have to battle with what I'm doing or what I'm up to or in this realm of race. And the last piece that I would say is one thing that I've struggled with, and I think we're moving away from it, but I still hear it. We talk about this concept of cultural competence. 
competence a move, uh, uh, assumes arrival, right? Arithmetic, two plus two equals four. I've arrived, I'll have that forever. I'll understand that, I'm competent in that space. Culture is ever evolving. There is no possible way to be competent culturally. It's not possible. So if that is the case, I think about, so I, I have a place here in Detroit when I'm working during the season and, I, and my wife and family are in Minneapolis. When I go away for weeks and come back home, I can't even be competent of the culture of my own home. Exactly. It's changed. It's changed from those two weeks, three weeks that I'm gone and I return. The experience that my family unit has had has changed. The experience that I have had in this, in this world has changed. So I can't even be competent in the culture of my own home. How in the world could I be competent in another's culture? I must be responsive. I must be adaptive culturally. That we should not use the language of competence because it tells people, well, you should know it all. Well, if I'm supposed to know it all, I already innately know I won't know all of this. I can't be competent in their culture. So I just won't even try because I know I can't do it. So those are just things I'm not going to rant, but those are things that I think are really important. The idea, right, and you said that was brilliantly stated, the idea that a therapist has to know in order to lead intervention is, and is an unfortunate idea, is that we have to create and hold space for being ignorant and being okay with being present without knowing. Like many of our questions are, our questions are as important as the questions we don't ask, right? And we're very intentional about the, the nuance between them because we're always trying to guide the process toward an end goal. And in this work, I think it's important for us to be okay with not having a predetermined destination. And the idea of the medical model says you now you have a presenting problem, you need to treat that presenting problem. And this is the theory by which you do that. When we think about context, though, it is so difficult to be so prescriptive. And so, as Corey mentioned, and I certainly support that, is that we have to be adaptable, um, but we certainly have to be comfortable with not knowing and allowing the process together in the space with this community to evolve into a healing development process. Carlin, but people want to see and as therapists akin to teachers, too often they, the, our mindset becomes, I want to be the sage on the stage. I'm supposed to know all of it. If they move in a direction, I'm supposed to know it doesn't, life doesn't work that way. Therapy doesn't work that way. My job is to be curious with you. I tell people all the time, therapeutically, my job is to be curious with you. My job is to listen for patterns in, in, the, in the content of your conversation and be curious and spew back that pattern and be curious about if you understood or noticed that pattern. What you do with it is yours. What you choose to do with it is yours. I don't get to dictate that. Yeah, I study these therapists' common factors and authenticity and curiosity. And the worst thing you could do is in trying to build an alliance is act like you know if you don't know. So <laughs> therapy in these postmodern conventions of being a conversation and not knowing and intervening just through asking questions is so powerful, especially when you don't know what that person's lived experience are like. So Carlin, I know you talk a lot about the importance of storytelling and belief systems and doing this work. And I want to talk about that in a second, but I think that what you guys are saying is so important. And many times I think young therapists or therapists working with a different population, they have to act like the expert, or if they don't know, they, they, they rely on structure from some manualized treatment or something like that, which is really a turnoff 
to potential disenfranchised minority clients that just want a dialogue. They just want to be able to talk and have their experience validated. So what you all are saying is, is so true, but it's it's the kind of stuff that we don't do enough training on in our MFT programs and just being, instead of culturally con- uh, competent, being culturally humble and curious. These are the most important things. So I want you guys to talk about, because you both reference it in, in the chapter, kind of historical trauma and what clinicians need to know about that. And then just the importance of storytelling and narrative conventions and doing this work. I was going to probably share this this story a little bit later, but I think it's important for therapists to be able to experience a client's pushback as feedback and to shift your approach based on the feedback of the client so that you can recognize that maybe the model, the modality and your approach might've been incongruent with the needs of the client. Here's the story. I was working um, at Lutheran Social Services, which was based out of Lansing, Michigan. And these were unaccompanied minors, generally from Africa, um, youth, right? 14, 12, this client was 18 years old. And, and I was working with him and I found myself trying to use, and I'll call it a generally white approach to addressing clinical issues. I used the approach and I was using symbolism uh, to help him identify and sort of throw away his experience, his previous trauma. He looked at me, young person, and said, man, I'm from Africa. That stuff don't work for me. Oh, man, life changing. Pause me right in the moment. And I'm like, whoa, oh, oh. And I had to deal with, right, what I thought I knew with what the client just said and what I needed to be and what I wanted to be as a therapist. And what I wanted to be was a space for healing for him, which required me to reevaluate my approach, what I thought was useful, even though I evaluated well the quote unquote presenting problem. And I thought about a treatment approach that would be useful. I had to think about a client centered approach, which meant that I needed to pause, reflect and then collaborate. And so treatment changed after that. And so when I talk about storytelling in this moment, right, I started to lean into giving him the space, not me the space to be the questioner, but giving him the space to be the storyteller. And then I would just pull up certain concepts in those stories to just allow him to sit with and reconceptualize his own story. That became healing for him, even though it was in many cases different from how I was trained. It was healing for him. And so that's why storytelling is so important, because in the story, there's resilience identified. And then as the therapist, I could just highlight some ways that he already had within them the necessary skills to navigate his own lived experience and trauma. And then I just gave some additional strategies. That's the power of story. And African-Americans have been storytelling since African-Americans were African-Americans, and it's been transmitted as a form of resilience in the community. So why not use a resilience strategy that is considered a factor for traversing community trauma in the context of treatment? It's obvious, and yet we often don't think about it because we've been socialized to take white-based therapy and try to put it upon communities of color, which is inappropriate. Yeah, I agree with, with what Carlin said. He said um, that storytelling has been a critical component of African-Americans since African-Americans have been African-Americans. But I would take it a step further that our collectivistic engagement understanding comes from the continent of Africa, that we have been storytellers from the beginning. 
That is, we are true to that. We held to that. So we were brought to this country and stripped of tons of pieces, stripped of our languages, stripped of our culture, stripped of our religion, all of those pieces. But we held fast to the storytelling aspect. It was one way in which they couldn't take that. You you can't take that from us. Hey, we'll continue to tell these stories generation after generation. I think that's really important. I'm a day one medicine man that I was a mentor of mine. Named Sam Gurno taught me so much through. He's an MFT, um, but much more than an MFT. Um, so so very wise. And the statement that he gave me that I think is really really important is he said, outside of an individual, outside of a religion, or outside of a community, you can only treat, but not heal. Healing can only come from within. Only you can treat, and it's really important. And, and our work as therapists is treatment work, but we cannot heal anyone that the job of healing comes from within. That if I cut my arm wide open and it's bleeding and I go to the doctor, they're gonna clean it up and put ointment on it and stitch it up, but my body will heal it. So they will treat it, but my body will do the healing. That's good so, for so, so us being clear that healing must come from within, within and that we as healers can be facilitators of that process, but we cannot do that work. That, that individual, that community, that family system must do its own healing, right? So if we can go into the conversations, into the realm of therapy, understanding that, then we understand better our role as facilitators of said healing. So if I, th- I think that's a, a piece. So this storytelling that occurs intergenerationally has some deep and profound roots in the collectivistic culture that we come from. And that we are a community that will share the learning, that it is not individualistic, that it is not a competitive-based space. So I went to the University of Minnesota. That's competition. Everybody wants to get the best grade. Everybody wants to write the top and get their dissertation out and publish before everyone else. That's individualistic and competition-based. That's not the community. That's not the space that we come from. We come from a storytelling healing, collectivistic space. So understanding that as therapists, especially white therapists, if there is a frame of understanding there, um, we may better, or white, white therapists may better be able to support black and brown therapists. But if we are clear, and I think critical race theory is something that I used in my work, I think it's something that helps to explain um, better why storytelling is really, really important to us. And if we can know that that forbidden ability, especially in, a, in our arrival in this country, the forbidden ability to read and write forced storytelling to become more of a cornerstone in the African-American community. So all those aspects, I think, are really important. In the United States, there was a study done around individualistic cultures versus collectivist cultures. And, and if you guys have heard this study, the study found that the United States was at a 92 percentile out of 100 in terms of individualistic culture compared to many communities that are 7 percent, 10 percent. And these are generally minority communities, what we consider minority communities across our world. What that tells me in this particular context is that we as clinicians have been, as people, as Americans, have been socialized to operate from an individualistic perspective. And even our clinical training operates from an individualistic perspective because it's it's so integrated it's so insidious to us as a culture generally in the United States 
we then have to be intentional about trying to relearn approaches that are collectivist because it doesn't come natural to us because we've been inundated with be individual, operate from an individual perspective. And when we think about the power imbalance between therapist and client, I believe it's the therapist's job to find a way to give power to the client and remove power from ourselves. And that's hard to do, but essential to do, especially when you are serving historically collectivist communities. They must have the power. That's why we say empowerment. They must have the power. And to Corey's point, that's how healing will occur. But if we need to be the treaters and we need to be identified as the reason for said outcomes, then we will always engage in some forms of microaggressive behavior and invalidate the experience of the client and then perpetuate that stigma that is so justified in that community. Hey, just quickly, I would say, Carlin, to that point, you talk about individualistic space. I think it's one of the struggles that we've had since the pandemic ensued that people will say, it's my right to not wear a mask, it's my right. So this is an individualistic stance, right? It, but we are, this, this country was founded on rugged individualism. So when you say it's found its way into the very fabric of this country, it started from the beginning. So if we then have a, something that we run into that calls for a collectivistic, community-based, societal-based movement, we're gonna struggle there because we want to hold on to our individual rights. But these are times that may call for more of a collectivistic space. If we, hey, I got to wear this mask, I hate wearing it, but it's for everyone else, not just for myself. We're going to struggle there. And I think if, I, if those are, and Eli, I heard you talk about early, the macro, the macro is not just the macro because it chooses to be. It's because it's made up of all the micros that are created in all the spaces and they create the macro. So those micro spaces that are struggling create the macro, right? So I, I think um, recognizing that is, is a really, really critical importance. You guys are right on board with our viewers and listeners today. We are looking and looking at the chat room and you can send us a message. We have about 15 minutes left, so I can't promise we'll get to it, but you can put your comments and feedbacks in the Q&A. People are kind of talking about our origins in our field that Mnuchin did this a long time ago as far as training paraprofessionals that were stakeholders and were credible sources in their communities to work with, with families and youth. And as we're talking about this more collectiveness and intervening on in this community level, I teach in a school of social work where it's a dual program. We're training social workers and MFTs, but most people know what a social worker is and, and a social worker is inherent to social work values, being in the community, this advocacy MFT is thought of more kind of in the private practice therapy office. What do we need to do as MFTs to build better connections with community stakeholders? Like also in the chat room, people are talking about uh, African-American black churches and other credible sources within the community. What do we need to do to better establish the identity of systemic family therapy in these communities, guys? Yeah, so I'll say um, the first is we need to learn. Um, we need to be open to learning deeply, and that requires some cultural immersive experiences that allow us to be the minority in that space without knowledge and, and being curious about the nuances of how those communities operate and function. We cannot assume we know anything about how these communities function together within the context of community from a spiritual vantage point and or just a shared lived experience vantage point. We need to first learn. 
and we need to keep learning and then we need to keep learning and it's to, uh, to Corey's earlier point around cultural sensitivity and cultural humility to what you said earlier Eli and recognizing that that's always a space that we need to be in is the learning space that's the first answer to that as we learn we then begin to identify ways that we might be helpful and then we offer that as a service rather than proposing it we offer it and then we talk about how it could be useful in the context of what we've learned, what we have acknowledged to be true, and what we know is real for the persons that we might want to serve. We have to find ourselves in those communities, leveraging what is already true and beneficial to that community, and then finding and identifying where we can be helpful. And then as we articulate where we can be helpful, we need to collaborate to design a process that is helpful in the context of that community. And so what I will say last to that is, right, like when we think about Black pastors, for example, Black pastors in many cases are the shepherds and the protectors and the gatekeepers. It's not always the case because there are matriarchs in many communities, if not all communities of color, especially African-Americans. But in the context of churches, Generally, the pastor has been identified as male, but that's changing, which is great. When we think about pastors, though, they protect their flock from even sometimes these systems that may perpetuate aggression, either micro or macro. So as we think about those communities, we need to build upon those individuals that are already seen as the gatekeepers, as the resources. And again, Corey mentioned not making them therapists, but giving them to skills to be therapeutic in helpful ways. I think it is important for the MFT to think systemically around how do we look at the macro system and build and leverage and empower with some therapeutic techniques. And then in the instance where they need us be present and available in that community, not asking folks to come to us. Yeah, I think, I mean, Carlin hit numerous points that I agree wholeheartedly with. If we talk about community engagement, we should be, shouldn't we be part of a community, right? So if I'm engaging the community, there almost is an assumption that I'm not part of it, right? So how do we enter and become more part of the communities that we represent, that we are working within, that we seek to support. So finding ways to be, become more aware of that community, find the nodals, the pastors, the parishioners, all those folks that, that create and make up that community, are we finding ways in which to be somewhat a part of that? I think that's a critical aspect. And the, the last piece that I would say is, Carter talked about privilege. I think we have to be clear that anytime we can be avoidant, it means I'm probably moving with privilege. If I can avoid something, I'm probably have privilege there, right? If I could avoid it, I'll have to do that. I'm not going to talk about that. That's probably a space that I have privilege. So how do we recognize that once we, hey, I'm avoiding that. Well, what does that mean? Ooh, I have privilege there, right? I don't want to talk about the treatment that women are enduring, enduring when they go to buy a car. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah, because I, I have a privilege. Um, and really, if we can be avoidant, it probably means deeply I want to hold on to my privilege, but let's be clear. Anytime you have privilege, you don't want to give it up. You don't want to give it up. I want to keep it, but I don't want others to know that I want to keep it. So I just got to shut up about it and just hold on to it. Being clear about that, the understanding where we stand, where we are and how that plays contextualizing that space is what we need to think more about. So in training the next generations of systemic family therapists, which I know we're all invested in doing, 
what we're talking about now is helping them be more aware of this unconscious bias and these microaggressions that we've been mentioning. So that was a perfect example to do that. One of the things as a common factors guy, the Carlin mentioned it earlier, the importance of feedback. So we're tying everything together and I'm trying to take a skill from this talk. And this is a talk we've had this hour. I think anyone accredited program should be listening to anyone in direct practice, even if African-American clients are not your bread and butter as far as your population. I mean, this is such an important dialogue we're having today. So how do I get feedback from my clients, my African-American clients on my therapeutic style, on my ability to create space for them to tell their story? What would you suggest for anybody else that is now listening to this and is now, as you just said so articulately, Corey, aware of their discomfort around their privilege? How do we get feedback on our therapy with this population? Yeah, I think you could do, I mean, there's some old school pieces that you can do the session rating scales and all of that. I think they're important. You can use them. But how about we just ask? How about we just really say, I'm going to engage the last 10 minutes of this conversation and say, hey, so I know that we have some difference racially. I'm just going to put that on the table. First session. Why wait until session 12 where you haven't discussed race, but your client's been thinking about it, but you haven't said anything. Why not ask the questions? I know that we have some racial difference in this space. I I want you to know that I'm comfortable as a therapist discussing it. I doesn't mean I know everything about it, but I, I want you to know that this is a space that I am comfortable engaging in those conversations. Um, and if you want to bring any of that forward, I am more than comfortable. You may, I may bring up some questions and be curious about race as we move through. I don't, unless you want it to be the focal point, it doesn't have to be, but I want you to know that I am comfortable with that. Just that simple 22 second statement allows a client of color to walk away saying, all right, they're not scared of that. I like that. That's a good start. I'll come back again. So I think that recognition is critical, but just having the ability to ask for that feedback, hey, give me some feedback on what you think we're up to here. Because I want to make sure that we're moving in the direction that you want to move. And do it at the beginning. Don't wait. Why wait? But but so if if, if I go five, six sessions in before checking in to see if you like where we're going, often I've had, I had a, a number of mentors explain to me, you can be 20 sessions in and a client may still have not hired you. They still haven't hired you. They still haven't hired you. I'm coming, but I haven't fully hired you yet. How can we find the ability to be hired by the client early on? That you're not going to necessarily get hired session one. But if you are candid about where you stand, about the differences that you may have racially, about wanting to make sure that you're supporting them in the way they would like to be supported, the chances of being hired increase. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we're searching for, is that they find a level of comfort and an ability to be candid about their circumstances and seek the change that they seek. Not what we see, but what they see. I think that's, for me, that's how we can find, that's how we can be most of service. I just want to add, and this is not a response to the question of feedback because I 100% agree. It's the, it's the, it's the way you phrased the initial part, Eli, which is those of us who have expertise in working with this population. And if you don't, then what does that mean? And, and I, I want to, you didn't say it exactly that way, but I want to highlight that I think MFTs need to be more intentional about identifying where's the greatest suffering and then getting expertise in those areas. 
And, and for me, you might not necessarily be most comfortable with working with African-Americans, but you certainly need to have a skill set to do so. And you certainly need to be finding a way to engage the population. And I'm not saying African-Americans, I'm not comparing suffering because I don't want to go into that conversation. What I am saying, though, is that we all know that suffering is present for African-Americans historically and currently. It is so. In that way, I think it's important for us to think about then how, as an MFT, might I be helpful to support the resolution and the healing around that suffering? That requires me to hear and receive feedback and to grow and develop skill sets in serving those who are BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color. And the last thing I'll say is the way that we receive feedback has to be in the context of the way clients like to give the feedback. And so Corey mentioned just as, and that's certainly probably the best approach, but we also need to be curious about what are ways that the client would like to give feedback so that we can then develop a feedback loop that includes what they prefer and how they prefer to give it, which is important to consider as well. I always say that we work with have enough problems. Them trying to match to our way of working shouldn't be another one. We should be flexible and curious enough to match to what they need. And that's creating space like we talked about today. And that's trying to find feedback that is kind of congruent and organic with the way they want to give it. This profession in general is aging. So we need young, passionate clinicians. And we need also more clinicians of color, MFTs in training. What do we need to do as a profession, gentlemen, to open the doors that more people even want to pick this profession compared to social work or related discipline that more minority, especially African-American, actually pick? What do we need to do MFT to build bridges so that we have more Carlins and Corys out there? I don't know if you want more Corys out there. I don't think you don't even really want more of them out there. You want more Carlins, not Corys. Uh, just quickly, I would say, simple. My my mentors always have told me, "Hey, Corey, you're so you're pragmatic." So what's the pragmatic, practical answer? Hey, reach down. It's too late by the time you get a kid that's in their senior year of college to talk to them about their master going into a master's in MFT. You it's too late in the game. So why not find the ability and push a movement that talks about MFTs with kids in high school? As you go into college, or you think there's a field that you may want to look at, that having these conversations early on, earlier, as opposed to you get a kid in their second year in their master's program, and now you want to talk about MFT as a PhD. Let's find ways to reach more deeply back into those communities and especially communities of color and engage and, and ask if there's interest and explain what we do. Uh, I think we have to do, again, I said earlier that we have to find the ability to convey what is unique about MFT. We don't need to just show up at the trough, that we must show up with our unique abilities. And if we don't, if we show up with our unique abilities and don't convey them or don't let others know what those abilities are, they, they, they're ignorant to that space. So we have to push back on that ignorance and early on, earlier, let people know who we are, what we stand for, and why it's important for us to build and broaden the MFT world. And let me build on that last half of your comment, um, which is we have to find a way to be authentically MFT and no longer try to replicate 
other fields. And what I believe, and I know we all know this, that people are drawn to where they can be most help. And, and maybe we should wonder about why people are not drawn to MFT. And is it because we've been trying to be something that we're not? And we've, in that process, become irrelevant in some ways. Mm. Um, and so if we could be more intentional about being our authentic, who we were designed to be as a field, and then find ourselves in the communities that are experiencing the greatest suffering, people will be drawn to want to do similar work. And they'll say, what is it that you are doing that is creating change in me? I'm an MFT. So it's, it's experiential in nature, right? And so let's think about what is our authentic space. Hold that and then be intentional about spreading the knowledge around that through real change. Yeah, I'm not going to say it any better than you two guys did. That's, I mean, I want to thank you for an hour of honest, authentic, really important conversation. If our listeners want to get a hold of either one of you guys to continue the dialogue, and I thank everybody that's participated live. I, we were having such a great talk. I didn't have time to to mention everybody in the chat room, but uh, sounds like much like I have, uh, our listeners have enjoyed this conversation. How can they get a hold of you guys? What's the easiest way to reach you? So social media at Dr. Corey Yeager on Instagram and Twitter. It's probably the easiest and best way to, to engage or catch up with me. After the basketball season, right? Yeah. yeah we only got a few more weeks uh, of the NBA season. So I think things will lighten up. We could have a whole nother show on that. Maybe we will. I can't wait to talk to you about your, That's cool. your, your applying, helping people and working with systems, uh, professional athlete systems. E yeah, Eli, it just lets us know. MFTs, we don't have to only do private practice. That's Man, right. Talk about There's it, Gordon. a ton of things that we can do. I'm That's working right. in the NBA doing psychotherapy with players in the organization. There's tons of spaces we can use it. We've been relegated to only think of it in one way. There's we can we can do what we choose to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely. Carlin, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah. At Dr. Carlin J. Uh, most of the social media websites, that is how you can find me. And let me just say, Corey, right on the benefit of being an NFT is that we have transferable skills in any context yes. that we choose. That's right. We have to choose it and yes. then be present in it and find ways to intentionally integrate to change systems. Sometimes it'll choose us, Carlin. You said it earlier. That's Sometimes right. it chooses us. That's what the NBA That's right. That's right. That is part of the marketing of our profession. When you have this systemic skill set, you can take it everywhere. And that's one of the things that I love about doing this podcast for the three seasons. But also, as we conclude our live series, you guys have ended it in a very strong note. This notion as relational healers, we are needed in more than just a therapy where we are needed in community context, in larger, as we've said, macro context, and those skills really apply. AMFT in its own way is helping doing that. You guys have both been a part of the Minority Fellowship Program, which is an amazing program. AMFT has a leadership certificate. Uh, you can find more about that at amft.org, where it takes your systemic skill set and expands it to working in different systems, being a leader in different contexts. So AMFT has you covered on that. So as I'm plugging that, I'll also plug Brighter Vision, where you can go for all of your private practice therapy website marketing needs. And they're the sponsor of our podcast. All members get two free months to so check that out and check us out, all of the back editions at AMFT. Dot org. You can also find out everything you need to know about the handbook systemic family therapy of which this live series has been based on, including the letters to the field chapter that we have talked about today with 
Corey and Carlin, they're so articulate, they write the same way. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to them. It's an amazing chapter with lots of different perspectives, not just the, what we talked about today. So that's amft.org slash handbook. I can't recommend it enough. You can get a hold of me at info at elikaram.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. And please drop us a line. Listen to all three seasons. We have over 50 podcasts now in the archives with thought leaders like Bill Doherty, Corey's mentor, Karen Wampler, as, as Carlin mentioned, great leaders and emerging topics that all systemic therapists need to know about. Thank you for listening. And until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.